Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Why, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall, either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire, and this is Bombs on Seats, the film show that believes in unicorns and isn't afraid to admit it. Today we're taking a trip north and west for some country in Wild Rose. Jonah Hill skateboards back to the mid-90s, Brie Larson is opening up the unicorn store, and Isabel Huppert will be giving Chloe Moretz a hard stare that would make Paddington proud in Greta. I'll be looking forward to saying Isabel Huppert as many times as possible in the next hour. Plus, our own Ashley is talking to the directors of two films who'll be in Cambridge for a Q&A screening of their films in the next couple of weeks, with writer-director of Winterlong David Jackson and co-director of H's for Harry, Edward Oles. All that to come... But first of all, we're going to find out a little bit about our reviewers today. And with Wild Rose being our first film, I thought I'd ask them what their favourite film about musicians is. So, from my left to right... Hi, I'm Bridget Bradshaw, and one of my favourite films about musicians is The Blues Brothers. I saw it years and years and years and years ago, and I love it mostly because of Aretha Franklin. I think that's a very good reason to love it. Hi, I'm Victoria Earp. And my favourite musician-based film would probably be Almost Famous. I feel like it made me love Elton John. It's something that I wouldn't have normally um, related to, and the emotional depth of Tiny Dancer really gets you through those problems. And that's something I think everyone should have in their lives. Uh, hi, I'm Christian Foreman, and you've stole my favourite musician film. <laughs> so, yeah, mine is almost all... all Almost famous. Almost famous. Almost, yeah. almost famous. Seventies um, <laughs> rock music is my favorite genre of music, and this almost famous is just a love letter to that musical time period. And it's yeah, my favorite soundtrack to re-listen to. So, almost famous. If you take nothing else from today's show, ladies and gentlemen, go and watch Almost Famous when we're done. But before you do that, we've plenty of films to talk about, and we're going to start by heading off to that mecca of country music, Glasgow. Your Lordship, Miss Harlan has put her childish ways behind her. Her children are living with her once again. Do you miss me? She is a promising young country singer. I'm trying to get to Nashville. Well, you better mind your tab doesn't go off when you're going through security. Country music is three chords in the truth. Just get to whoever's in there out. I should have been born in America. I'm an American. You're young. You're incredibly talented. There is nothing you can't do. Just thinking about your kids, you cast them off when you get a better offer. This is me trying to make something of myself, and truly, that's a good thing for them. No letting them down. That would be a good thing for them. Had to There's so, so much I can't undo. I wanted you to take responsibility. I never meant to take away your hope. You've got a voice. Make my own You've got something to say. But you know that I had to go. So, Bridget, I'll come to you first. Uh, what did you think of Wild Rose? Um, yeah, she's uh, Jessie Buckley, who plays Rose, has this amazing energy. She, I think she literally bursts onto the screen at the beginning. Yeah, um, it's sort of set in a prison, isn't it? And she, she's just being released from prison, and, and it's manic energy from minute one. Yes, and there's there's an exuberance, and, and you want to be sympathetic, but she's also not, not the 
um, politest of people, so you don't you you don't always sympathise with her quite as much. Um, but her energy really brings the script along. I mean, the script tries as hard as it can to give her a nice, um, upbeat story of, of sort of bad girl makes good, um, and her character just usurps this and breaks through this all the time. Anytime it, it tries to look like some, something's going to be a bit nice and, and everyone will live happily ever after, um, she does something that, that confounds your expectations and yet it still, still ends well. I mean, I think this this is a story we've seen uh, countless times on on the cinema screen of, of underdog comes good. Is this giving fresh wrinkles to that story, or, or is it a little bit predictable? No, well, she's a, a different sort of underdog. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've seen anyone quite like her. Usually, there's been some element of character arc that makes you be a better person in this way or that way. That's the socially accepted way of doing things. Um, but even when things are going well for her, she'll find a way. I think they say in it she's her own worst enemy and and when she's got herself in a nice position in the film she's in a first class carriage she manages on, on the train she manages to just through her, her energy to and to try and make things better she manages to make things worse and, and nearly lose everything yeah, it's a, a, a tough story, a tough background she's coming from. Uh, Vicky, are you a particular fan of country music? Is this, is this something you were looking forward to going into or, or approaching a bit of trepidation? Uh, I'd go with the trepidation. Um, country music is not something that I have delved into before, um, but I've got to say, like, throughout throughout the film, the, the best parts are the musical, the musical arcs of it. And uh, Jessie Buckley, like she is, um, she burst out with Beast uh, earlier last year, or later last year. And since then, I feel like this is a very good follow up film for her, like just strong, like female characters. And uh, uh, I think I've got to say it was, um, it was a pretty hard film to get through. Uh, I feel like yeah, like Bridget said, she is just a character that constantly makes mistakes and her selfishness is hard to watch, especially to pure um, Judy Dench. Is it Judy Dench? Yeah. Walters. Uh, Walters. Walters. Yeah. Judy Walters. Judy, Judy Walters, putting on the most amazing Glaswegian accent I think I've, I've seen a character do who's not Glaswegian in some time. That's 100%. And, um, yeah, um, as she, she constantly uh, makes you... I, I don't know, the, the redemp there's not much of a redemption arc. She always stays true to this clumsy, this um, character that falls. And uh, maybe uh, towards the end, you just you get to know her more, and that is when like maybe you can become uh, more uh, sympathetic. But throughout, it's, it's quite hard for me, um, I guess, uh, just to love this character. But maybe that's the whole point of the film. You don't have to love her. She is just this amazing singer and that's all that she wants to be. Uh, I don't know you necessarily have to love her, but do we have to feel sympathetic to her, to her plight, to her cause, you know, wanting to try and crack into country music? Do, 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 are you willing her to succeed uh, uh, through the course of the film or, or maybe hoping she'd end up with a bit of egg on her face for, for the way she was behaving? I definitely wanted the egg on her face, especially just because uh, Julie Walters was going through so much and you just want this person to realise that. And when, when I guess, like, I don't want to make a spoil, but when she does, you're like, oh, th thank goodness, <laughs> like, it's finally happened. Um, yeah. 
I, I, I think the, the, the one character that stood out for me if, across the film was uh, Sofia Conido's character, who is the, uh, the, the woman that, uh, that Rose ends up going to work for as a house, sort of housekeeper, very cleaner. Um, I'm trying to think of the word they used in the film. Uh, the very Daily woman. woman. Daily woman, that's the, uh, that's the one. Uh, I should have done some prep for this show. Disgraceful. Uh, so she, she goes to work as a daily woman for, uh, for Sofia Conido, and uh, then the opportunity to try and make her break is, is almost literally dropped into her lap uh, with a chance to go and, and have a chat with Whispering Bob Harris on, on Radio 2. Uh, all hail Bob. Uh, so, you know, is, is the film actually making her journey too easy, this, this, this sort of pseudo-redemptive arc? You know, is it actually not challenging enough? The script is making it easy. The script is doing everything it can for things to fall into her lap and make her journey easy so that she can be recognised and lauded for the star that she undoubtedly is. But she does so many things to knock that over and and, and poison the chalice she's drinking from. Um, not deliberately, but uh, she just... Uh, and, and a couple of the things where she thinks this... What she really wants to do... Um, and that will be where her life changes and she finally gets to experience that and she finds out it doesn't do anything for her at all. So when I think it's, it's about um, living life on her own terms and Vic, Vicky said about we get to know her more towards the end of the show, towards the end of the film, and I think she does too and she manages to make her personality strengths... Um, or quirks work for her so she can use her stubbornness and her integrity to do what she thinks is right um, and channel that into her music and, and make a success of that. Uh, is it actually then almost a virtue of the film that, that she manages to go through this this process and she has this 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 arc that's quite typical to these films, but she doesn't actually change that much of the character? Uh, you know, it's, it's not sort of Groundhog Day where 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 Phil Connors is a completely unrecognisable person by the end of the film from the start. Yeah, you know, she's still very she, much she's wild still rose. The same person. And, um, I think with this film, you go into it knowing that it's just a very a real human film, as in like she makes these human mistakes. I mean, not. I wouldn't say, like, the normal human mistakes, they're very, like, over the top. But at the same time, um, when she... I feel like when she goes to Nashville and you, and she sees, like, how hard it is, it, is, it doesn't brush over it. Like, there's a part where she sings at the church and uh, you want her to, like, be discovered, but, like, she isn't um, in that way. So, like, I feel... It sticks to the very truth that she's just, it's a real situation. She has this dream and it's just so hard to get there. And yeah, I think uh, definitely that her character is, and the storyline is just this, this hard journey that she goes on. And um, sorry, she just, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 there, there were certain things about the film that, that for a while didn't ring true and then it, the film almost pulls it back. When she goes out on the stage and she, she's singing, I was sort of thinking, how realistic is it that someone could actually make their way up on stage? Yeah, and then when she goes outside, they go, oh yeah, people do that all the time. And, and <laughs> it sort of just redeems itself slightly thinking, well, if, if they do, then I'm happy to, to, to buy into that. Uh, but, you know, she, she, she ends up at the, with the start of the film wearing a, 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 a tag which has been uh, released on, on, uh, on conditions uh, and, and all these little things through the course of the film. It's just sort of pushing against that that sense of reality you know she, she's uh, sometimes leaving her two kids completely to their own devices with with julie waters uh, uh, the, the grandma character um I, I sort of wonder about these 
uh, almost kitchen sink realism type of, of films. You know, we, we don't get many Scottish examples, but yeah, certainly they're, they're to a penny of the, the English tradition. And this has got country music layered on the top to give it something different. But have we now seen enough of, of domestic British life to last us a lifetime? I, I'll let either of you come in on that one. I would have thought so, but I think uh, Fighting With My Family came out a few months ago, and that uh, it was based in Norwich, and I love that film. I feel like that was a great, like, British, like, typical uh, working-class uh, kind of situation, and, and that turned into this massive redemption arc um, for the main character. And now that I've seen that, I think like maybe it can be done well again. And obviously Wild Roses came out and making me second guess that. But I, I thought uh, Fighting With My Family has similar aspects to this film and uh, only more, more happy, more family friendly, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, because this does come with a 15 certificate, so it's, mm. it's, it's, I think Fighting My Family is more a recommendation for, for those wanting to take slightly younger audiences along. Uh, there, there's uh, some choice language, we say, which we're not going to repeat at one o'clock on a Saturday. Um, I, overall, Bridget, would you, you give this one your recommendation? Uh, yeah, it's a good film. There's um, lots of humour in it that we've not really touched on that comes from the culture clash. Um, there's, yeah, it's good. Yeah, and um, uh, I, mean, I think probably for me it's the, it's the two lead performances Jesse Buckley and, uh, and Julie Walters that are probably going to stay with you for the longest uh, I wasn't a country music fan before I went in I will say I was a little bit converted I'm not sure I'm going to be um, listening to Willie Nelson or anyone else much much uh, anytime soon but uh, but uh, you yeah, know Jesse Buckley has, has, has won me over um, uh, Vicky is this a recommendation for you as well? I say that uh, Jesse Buckley is definitely on the rise and if you want to get to know her now then this is a good film to watch Excellent. That's, uh, that sounds like a big thumbs up from us all here. Uh, Wild Rose is a certificate 15 and it's still showing at the Arts Picture House and the Light Cinemas. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. So we've got a couple of films coming up at the Arts Picture House in the next couple of weeks which have uh, director Q&A screenings and uh, hard-working Ashley Capaldi of the show has been talking to both of the directors uh, of these films before they headed to Cambridge. Uh, first of all, uh, she's been talking to the director of Winterlong, David Jackson, who's also the writer of the film, and it's his first feature. Uh, it follows a poacher who may need to change his lifestyle when his estranged son is left on his caravan's doorstep. Uh, so as Ashley spoke to David, she started by asking him what made him make the move from TV directing to feature films. You keep a secret as if your life depended upon it. I told you, didn't I? Like a lot of filmmakers, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'd always wanted to make a feature, and sort of felt that I had it in me, and um, it was the challenge of sort of having my own script and 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 being able to um, to do the things that I really wanted to do in the way that I wanted to do them without any sort of pressures from from sort of um, you know exec producers and and lots of people breathing down your neck, which you kind of have when you're directing for TV. So it was sort of my opportunity to do my own thing, I guess. It was a challenge. It was a challenge. It was certainly something that I wouldn't recommend to everybody, <laughs> but um, it, it's certainly been worthwhile. The thing that sort of struck me to start with was how you chose your lead actor, actually. I just happened to read that you're both from the same kind of small seaside town. And were you looking for yourself when you were casting this? Um, your own son plays Julian as well, does he? Yeah, that's right. So um, to begin with, um, I, I'll just talk about Francis McGee. So I met Francis um, directing when I was directing a Channel 4 drama and it turned out 
that um, Francis sort of lived in the same small seaside town in Hastings where I live. And uh, we kind of kicked off with a friendship, I guess. And the whole film is sort of based around, is written for Francis. I always knew Francis would be the lead in the film. And the whole thing was written around him. So um, this is a very low budget film. And it's kind of made with family and friends, really. So, so it was written for Francis and Francis kind of is the center of the film. And then I, you know, I had the idea that maybe I had a young son that was living with me and I thought, well, you know, well, maybe he could do this. And so I kind of threw him in at the deep end and, um, and thought maybe let's see how that goes. So you've got well-known people. You've got Dune. I can never pronounce her surname. How do you pronounce oh, Dune's yeah. surname? Dune McKeegan. McKeegan. And Ian yeah. Pulston Davis. Did I get that one right? That's right, yeah. So um, did you know them from your previous life in TV as well? Were they on board really early on or did they sort of catch wind of the project and want to get involved? Yeah, I mean, both Dune and Paul um, are sort of friends, really. And I've sort of known both of them for, for a while. So... I kind of, the, the idea really was to sort of try and get the best names I could with, with you know, no budget. And um, and Dune happens to live in Hastings, and I've known her for a long time. And so I kind of wrote the part for her. And then, and then I asked Ian just to come along and um, and do a day on the film, and he said he, you know, he, he agreed. And, and, and that sort of worked out just fine. I'm out here on my own because it's safer that way. Living alone is no protection from what's out there. Where did Carol come from? What? How did the idea for this complete otherness out of towners? She seems sort of otherworldly in many ways compared to the rest of your characters. What made you plop her in the middle of this place and this story? Carol, I worked with Carol Veyers on um, a short film that I made um, a few years ago. And I was just really struck by her as one as, a, as an as an actor. She was such a strong performer that I, I really wanted to to make something else with her, uh, a longer form thing. And I guess what it was about in the story, the character that she plays. I mean, she comes, she sort of has a small sort of smaller role to play, but she needed to be somebody that was sort of you know not re, not sort of on the wild side, but somebody who was sort of had something else going on, but was also quite uh, uh, grounded as well. So her relationship with Francis is kind of one of, 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 different, of, of different registers, I guess. Mm. And, um, and her part in the story was to come in and sort of, to sort of, you know, to, to not sort of play the mother at all, but just to sort of try and ground Francis and what he's doing and what his responsibilities were, and to remind him of what he's embarking on. If I ever find out you've told the Norse secret, I swear to God, I'll come for you and I'll slit your throat from ear to ear. Do you understand? You skirt on the edge of several tragedies. There seem to be lots of different directions you could have taken. Did you ever think you might go a little darker with any of the nearly happened events i don't want to give away too much well the sort of the initial drafts of the of the screenplay uh, were a lot darker and um and the film ended on on a, a much darker note actually and and i kind of sat with that for a while and 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 i just for me i just couldn't really commit to something that was so grim and hopeless and um i think as a as a 
as a filmmaker, you know, I, it's really important that there is, you know, hope that, you know, you give something out into the world, I guess, in your film that's, um, that just affirms something. And, uh, and I just felt that I couldn't leave these characters in a hopeless situation in a grim place. And so, so the film finishes where it does in a, um, a very sort of bright, optimistic way, um, which was contrary to, to, to what I initially thought would happen. And thank you to, uh, to David Jackson for sparing his time to talk to Ashley. Uh, Winterlong is showing at the Cambridge Arts Big Chaos on Sunday the 28th of April at 7.30 and David will be at a Q&A uh, session after the screening. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, you are listening to Cambridge 105 Radio. This is Bums on Seats and I'm joined in the studio today by Bridget, uh, Vicky and Christian as we've been talking already about Wild Rose which got a big thumbs up from us and we're now going to take ourselves back very much to uh, a time when I was just coming out of university to show my age. It was the mid-90s. Oh my God. I'm getting my today, man. Look, what I mean. I'm Ruben. Steve. How long have you been friends with those guys? A couple months. They're really cool. Oh, yeah. They're so cute. You think you're pretty cool. You good? Good ghetto ass friends. Just a little kid. You alright? A lot of the time, we feel like our lives are the worst. That's why we ride a piece of wood. What that does to somebody's spirit. So cool. Yo, Stevie is sane. <laughs> So, Mid-90s is Jonah Hill's uh, writing and directing debut after a fairly successful acting career over the past uh, decade or so. Uh, Vicky, did this speak to you? Um, personally, to me, uh, Mid-90s is this wonderful, authentic film that I, I just absolutely love. Um, Jonah Hill, in particular, like his directional debut is something that I've personally been looking forward to for so long, having grown up with Superbad and all these kind of um, wonderful films he's been in. Um, when I watched it, especially with like a large group of friends, like we by the end of it, we just were so overcome with this uh, love, like emotion, because uh, personally, you can relate to any of the characters within it. I feel like he's just made this thing that, especially since the '90s, is sort of like coming back, but they're always it's so um, nostalgic for someone that was like born in the '90s. Um, so when you watch, you just want to go back almost, like the music in it, like Wu-Tang Clan and all the, like, like all the, he's put so much detail into it, you can really spot it in the film and so it takes you back to growing up, which is, I think, it's sort of what he wanted to do with the film as well. It does feel like a real labour of love, like he's, he's, he's poured heart and soul into this and, and this was a period when he was growing up. Uh, uh, Christian, uh, how did this sit with you? Does, does this take you back to your childhood and your, your adolescence? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I found his direction incredibly refreshing. Um, I wasn't, I was only about five or s five, six in the mid-90s, but it's still, I felt very nostalgic of this time. Um, I like that it was shot in 4-3 aspect ratio. It's a very simple thing, but it made it feel of that time period. Um, I, I, it, I think his intentions were to make a film for 
about and made in the mid it, I think you wanted to feel like it was made in the 90s itself and it certainly did that it felt like it was made and just hasn't been released for 20 years and uh, I think it was a very great movie um, directorial debut for Johnny Hill and it's quite exciting to see what he's going to do next if this is what he's, what he's achieved in his first film Let, let's just touch on that briefly you mentioned there the, the aspect ratio of the film uh, so you know, for those who are not technically minded you'll typically go to the cinema and uh, the, the picture will, will largely fill the screen it's, it's either uh, uh, 1.85 times as long as it is high or 2.35 times uh, typically uh, and this is only 1.33 times uh, as, as long as it is high it's the, the, the shape that an old uh, 1980s TV used to be uh, and the, the, uh, the classic films of the Gone with the Wind era used to be, be shot in so it's very rarely used in films these days I think Vicky here you mentioned Grand Budapest Hotel as being one of the, the recent examples uh, of films shot like that um, I think it, it can be a double-edged sword for me because you are you're in the cinema and it's creating a, a certain uh, environment for you but also then you end up with a large amount of the screen having, having big black bars down the side and, and you're not necessarily watching something that's filling your field of vision so, so what, what did this approach do for you in terms of your viewing experience? I remember halfway through was just when I first realised it. Um, I remember just being like, oh, wait, the whole screen isn't filled. And um, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it at all. I thought it was just this, like, it wasn't, um, let's say it wasn't like a filtered over film. Like, you didn't just put a filter to make it look 90s. It was it was done purposely. It was shot in, I think, 16mm as well. Everything about it is just he's tried to make this like time capsule of a film and I think it's worked out pretty well uh, Bridget I think you're going to come in as well on this one uh, yeah I noticed the aspect ratio at the beginning but it didn't um, stay in my consciousness through the film um, and he's indeed managed to do some beautiful scenes which you'd really normally think of in widescreen like there's a, a shot when the cops come to the skate park and the cops are trying to catch the kids and the kids are all swirling around on their boards and it's like a ballet a dance a swarm and to think of something like that being in 4-3 and still being that effective is uh, really good directing uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I understand that Joan Hill had, had talked to the likes of Martin Scorsese, who he worked with on The Wolf of Wall Street, in, in, in preparing to come to direct this film. Um, it, it does feel to me like it's uh, he's really got the aesthetic, but it doesn't feel over-directed. It, it allows you to just sit with these groups of characters, and uh, quite often he'll have the camera positioned quite statically and just allow them to talk and, and to react to each other. Um, let Let's talk about the characters as well, because they, obviously the, the big standard here is, uh, is Sonny Sulich, who plays Stevie, uh, the I think he's 13-year-old, mm. uh, who is at the, the centre of the action. Uh, what do we think of his performance? I thought it was great. It, wasn't he... Didn't I see him in that... Um, Killing of a Sacred That one, yeah. yeah. He has got, he's got that tone in this as well. Mm. I thought he was great. He was a great choice. Um, he de definitely... His performance felt older. How old is he in real life? I think he's, I think he's 13. I he's believe 13. he is. Um... I think what you have to say about his performance is he, he's choosing these mature roles and he's going with it and it's it's working out really well for him as well. Like, um, Especially in like Killing of a Sacred Deer, the whole tone of it um, throughout for Yorgos. And then um, he's come to Jonah Hill and now he has this like person to look up to because I, if you've seen Sonny in any of the interviews, he pretty much worships him for giving him this role. And I feel like he uh, he's just... He's so great to watch on screen, and you can feel his enjoyment throughout, like, filming this. 
I, I have to say that I, I hadn't tweaked that uh, this was uh, somebody who was in Killing of a Sacred Deer and you have just collectively blown my mind. So <laughs> thank you for doing that. Um, I've, got, I've got to even mention to, to Catherine Waterston as well, who I think is a fantastic actress and has, has been in a host of brilliant films like Inherent Vice. Uh, and as people will probably best know from the Fantastic Beasts films, um, people should go and watch other films she's been in. Uh, but uh, you know, she, she maybe has the sort of thankless role here because she's just the, the judgmental mother who stands at the mm. periphery and, and just has to try and keep Sonny in line. Or is there more to it than that? Mothers aren't getting a very good deal in this week's uh, slate of films, are they? They, they're, they they're just not. sort of have to be a bit grumpy about how their children don't talk to them. Although, although I, I, I would defend both the mothers in thinking that they're, they're, you know, neither of them puts a foot wrong. They're both absolutely you know, right in their, their judgment of their children and uh, and probably do whatever they could to try and get them back in line. So, uh, so uh, it's not mothering Sunday this Sunday, but let's, let's, let's give did, a shout-out to mums. Does she, though, because she thinks that you know, Stevie's new group of friends aren't very good for him, but what she fails to realise is that the brother, under her own... She fails to um, recognise what's happening under her own home, right? I feel um, like this film, like, a point of this film is that it brushes over um, all the complexities of the character. Like, Lucas Hedges is a phenomenal ac- phenomenal <laughs> um, actor, and he he is just a brush-over character, and I feel like that goes with the tone of the film. Like, you just sort of have to get on with it. Like, you have all these issues, but everyone has those issues and I think it's said by Ray like you don't want anybody else's problems you just move on and then that's like skateboarding like you just have to move on about it and skate which is skateboarding is what is worshipped in this film and I feel like that's the whole point people skate to get well maybe they just because they enjoy it and it just gets you out of those like places and yeah I think like brushing over all the problems in this film is is part of it definitely. I sort of try I sort of tried to think that when I was watching it because mm. there's a lot of things about you fall and you get back up and you mm. take your knocks and I was going the film's kind of doing that but I know how long it takes to make a film and if you were deliberately going to have bits in your film that aren't so good but you go what the hey let's move on with them you'd address them six nine months earlier in the script stage I, I, don't, I don't know. I why, think, would, why would you not make it better if you could make it better? I feel, I Jonah Hill said that it took like four years to make this film. And I mean, you say like, um, why not make it better? But he perhaps he chose um, skateboarders as actors. Like he just wanted it to be for them. And I feel like even if there is um, issues in the script or as you say, like I feel like it was just an act of love to make this film, like a labour of love. And, um, so, like, the things where, at the beginning, young Stevie does some self-harm, he sort of hits himself with a hairbrush, and there's no real explanation as to why he does this or what he gets out of it or why he stops. I think it's another... a traumatic backstory, but it never actually goes into it, right? Um, which, I, yeah, I found quite disturbing as well, because I just wanted to know more, I thought, about the characters and the backstory. But I suppose this isn't a very plot driven story is it it's just a like a snapshot of characters it's putting these mismatch of characters into situations and seeing how they react we just watch them you know practicing skateboarding going to parties underage drinking um but there's there's a big event at the end of this film but there's no other than that there's no real plot um, yeah, I think I think for me the, the, there's two or three scenes of self-harm that's throughout the course of the film and uh, it's, it's just feeding into that sense of frustration that, that Stevie has that, that he's, he's not really found any group to fit in with and he's struggling with his adolescence and it's his, his outlet in private to try and, try and deal with that. Um, I, I, I think the, the group of friends he then falls in, in with and we probably do need to move on to something else at some point but I, I love the fact we're all sort of finding so much to take from this film. Um, it, it's that group of characters that, that Stevie ends up 
with, including one character's name who we definitely cannot say on the air, <laughs> uh, and you'll know that if you go to see the film. Uh, but but I think it's it's a double-edged sword that because you've got this this group of kids and they feel very realistic. It's almost a sort of American neorealism approach to to this environment. But at the same time, because they're so realistic, they're not exactly Oscar Wildean sparkling wit. They are they are kids who are just hanging out and making dumb jokes. So. I didn't know I wanted to spend as much time in their company as I ended up doing. That was the one big drawback in the film for me. What, what did other people feel? I feel like um, I left the film. I went with my friends, and I feel like we all came out want like I don't know, like loving their friendship, just loving this kind of like group of guys just hanging out together, all with their own problems, and sort of being sad together. And so sort of, that's kind of what friendships can be sometimes. And yeah, I came out just loving the group of guys. Yeah, I agree. I think it was very keenly observed um, w- look into this world. And yeah, it really gets into the fashion and the music of the time as well. And it's, um, you know, they're, they're not they're not so subtle archetypes. The archetypes are there. You've got the lady, you've got the funny one, you've got the shy one. Um, but yeah, like you say, in our friendship group, we all have all those. We don't, they don't have to be scared as in the mid-90s. We all have those people that we surround ourselves with. So we could find something to relate to, to them with. Well, I've actually forgotten how to ride a bike, so I may not be taking up skateboarding any time <laughs> soon. Uh, but uh, if this does uh, give you the impulse, then uh, Mid-90s is still showing at the Cambridge Arts Picture House, and it is a certificate 15, unsurprisingly, for the character names, if nothing else. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. You're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Mark Liversidge with Bums on Seats today. Uh, coming up on the show, we still have an interview with the co-director of H for Harry, which is coming to the Arts Picture House for a Q&A screening. And we're then looking at Neil Jordan's uh, sort of horror-come-slasher-thriller uh, with an all-female cast in Greta. But before that, we try to look at a Netflix release here on the show every week. And this week's release is Brie Larson's directorial debut, Unicorn Store. Kit, got a letter for you. Get ready. Get ready for what? You have come to the store, Kit. And I am the salesman. Behold, we sell what you need. Unicorns? That was the only thing I ever wanted. If I have one brought here, I have to know that you're for real. Don't know how to be a grown-up. My parents think that I'm insane. Honey, what is really going on? This is crazy. The most grown-up thing you can do is fail at things you really care about. You need to learn to love yourself. Get out there and show us what you can do. I will! Everybody needs some magic in their lives. Even if they're all grown up. Everyone needs some magic in their lives. A, a bold statement there. Uh, so, do we feel... I, I question I'm going to come to you uh, to try and avoid any kind of gender uh, discussion or, or, or predisposition around this. Uh, did this put some magic into your life? Yes, I quite enjoy. I enjoyed this more than I thought it would, given the slightly negative response it's had online. Um, you know, it's, it's quirky and slightly over the top, but I really enjoyed the message of this film, which is, you know, don't give up on your dreams, um, be yourself, and if you're stuck in a rut, do something about it. And I think that's a, quite a, a message we should be celebrating and we should um, get on board with. Uh, it's you know it's got its flaws which I'm sure we'll talk about but um, overall I think it's a quite it's, a, it's an easy and comforting way to spend 90 minutes of your life if you've got a Netflix account. 
I mean, I, I'm a, uh, I would say I'm a big fan of, of Brie Larson's work uh, and her career. I think Short Term 12 is actually probably, for me, the standout in the things that she's done. Uh, although, of course, she'll be best known for, for Room, uh, which she won the, the Oscar. And now, of course, uh, Captain Marvel. And it, it felt like an appropriate week to talk about this with, with Avengers Endgame coming up, uh, which will be her... Uh, she's now had three on-screen pairings with, uh, with Samuel L. Jackson because they were in, in Kong, Skull Island together. Uh, and they've uh, been in uh, Captain Marvel together as well as appearing on, on screen here. Um, was it a double act, uh, Vicky, that worked for you, of, of Samuel L. Jackson in a very different kind of role here, uh, and, and Brie Larson? I feel like uh, I feel like the thing that goes with this film is that it's just a harmless watch. Um, and I actually forgot that Samuel L. Jackson starred with her in Kongskong Island. Like, I'd probably forget that he's going to star with her in Unicorn Store. I think their most like obvious bond is Captain Marvel, and that is going to stay with you. But his character... Um, as the salesman is just sort of he's just so, he is there um, but this is meant pretty much just millennium millennial realism and he doesn't fit in with that but at the same time like he is a great quirky character like this the, um, the entire cast list is just this I mean Joan Cusack as well and um, the actor that plays Virgil it's just a very good well acted well I would say well acted um, performance but I wouldn't say it's a good script. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the the weak link for me in in this really is, is Samantha McIntyre's script. Uh, yeah, we, we've already touched on Wes Anderson films in the show today, uh, and you know that's that's for me the prime example of this kind of whimsy or or uh, taking us into a different world, different aesthetic in a film. Um, and it, it just felt like uh, the the script was holding everyone back and allowing us to try and be transported into something a little bit magical here. Uh, was was this sprinkling? fairy dust on your life Bridget or, or did it really not do it for you? Uh, I was really looking forward to it because I thought it would be this beautiful whimsy like Wes Anderson like Michelle Gondry um, from the trailer I thought that would be it but um, they managed to bring it down it just doesn't doesn't quite have the, the soul to it the characters don't really feel like there's much to them and, and do we think that, that Brie Larson's direction is, is responsible in any way here, or has she just not got the material to work with? I feel like... Uh, so this debuted at Toronto Film Festival in 2017, and um, I've been waiting for like the past two years for it to watch it personally, because 2017 for Brie Larson was like a massive year for her. She came out of room in 2015, and she could have done pretty much anything afterwards, but she's decided to direct this film, and I, I feel like it's, it's unbashed in its girliness completely, and... Um, I, feel, I don't know if it fits, because like, it debuted at a film festival, but most Netflix productions now, they do lose the characters, and maybe this is just why it works well for Netflix. I'm not sure. I, I think it struggled with tone, unlike what Jonah Hill did very well in mid-90s, where he, he maintained this very consistent tone throughout. I think this this wanted to be both really quirky and really serious, and, and by and just didn't impactfully do either at the end of it I kind of trying to kept switching throughout and I think the, yeah, the characters in the script um, let it down a lot and um, particularly what did you think of her character I, I went from really liking her to finding her quite annoying <laughs> throughout the whole thing I think she her childishness and na- naivety was um, just uh, dialed up a little too much uh, to a point where I didn't relate to her anymore yeah she was quite spoiled and quite selfish and not appreciating what she had but not really doing anything about making this beautiful art making these amazing things uh, just to go so quickly into the temp work it where was. she 
made everything grey again. These are very, like, I I hate to keep saying Mm. it, but millennial problems. This is like, you can leave something like art school and then you just want to make money. You just want to make your parents proud and to come out of art school and not have any of those options is very much just find a job as quickly as you can. (laughs) But it it didn't feel like it. It It felt like it was written by a child rather than millennial problems it felt it, it, it was some, about leaving your childhood behind it was about that that wanting to stay in in the childhood mm. state yeah um yeah i just didn't know what to think of this i i, I would say that i i, I probably empathize with this more than i did with uh, with uh, mid-90s because i've never ever been a skateboarder i did come out of university spend a year living in my mum's house and then and then end up temping to try and get myself a, a career out of it and you actually, wanted a unicorn uh, well, who doesn't? Actually, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a lovely aspiration to have. Although I couldn't help thinking at most points in the film, it's just going to be a horse with a horn stuck on the head. It, you know, it's it's not the thing which necessarily most inspires magic. You know, maybe a real life Care Bear or something rights issues notwithstanding, it may have may have given a sort of more magical aspiration. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Unicorn what? hamster. I mean, that would be unusual. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would. Yeah, I, I do think maybe it just wasn't quite enough of a leap. And again, again with the with the characters like the parents, with Joan Cusack and Bradley Whitford, who are, who are always so fantastic, it just didn't feel like they had their moment in this film. They're 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 doing sort of campfire scenes and they're talking. And um, I was waiting for for the film to really excite me, and it just never quite did. Um, and I'm, I'll be honest, I'm looking around at all of your faces and thinking it's, it's really not exciting any of you either. So um, I'm thinking maybe that is the point where we draw our discussion on Unicorn Store to a close. Bridget, you're going to say one final thing. Yeah, I, I knew which side I'd come down on the film when they said, graph paper can't love you back. And I thought, no, no, it can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not enough graph paper in the world, frankly. Or, or spreadsheets. I'm still waiting for a film that truly brings spreadsheets to justice. Uh, but uh, but this certainly was not going to be it. Moneyball. Uh, <laughs> Well, we can we can we can debate that one off air because I'm I'm not convinced that the Moneyball has done spreadsheets the justice they deserve. Um, but we are now definitely getting off topic. Uh, Unicorn Store is streaming on Netflix and is available now. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Now, the second of the two screenings at the Arts Picture House with a Q&A that's coming up is H is for Harry. It's a coming-of-age story about Harry, a charismatic 11-year-old boy who arrives at the secondary school in suburban London unable to read or write. With the help of Sophie, his extremely dedicated teacher, can he overcome the illiteracy ingrained across generations of his family? So Ashley spoke to co-director Edward Owls and asked why the film focused on education. So, what are you going to be doing when you're 25? Trying to stay alive. Jamie and I have worked together for quite a long time and she used to be a teacher so we'd been interested for a while in making a film that looked at some of the issues in education such as uh, sort of social mobility, educational disadvantage, the inequality of provision across the country. A lot of the films we'd done were from the teacher's point of view and we're talking about sort of interesting ways of, of teaching kids, ways innovative pedagogy, that sort of thing. And for a while we've been looking for a place to make a film that explored some of these issues from the child's point of view. What was it about Harry then that you've taken away with you? What did you learn from him, maybe? It's a a tricky question to answer, but I think I was surprised by, in some ways, his ability to cope and and to sort of keep up with his peers and have a sense of humour when he was also facing these enormous challenges and being on the same level as them. He's a good person to sort of dispel some of the stereotypes that people might have about someone who can't read or write. He's incredibly snappy and, and you know, has a wicked sense of humour. And so much of it comes 
comes back to self-belief, which is which is tough at the best of times when you're a teenager. But when you you're facing the challenges he has, it's especially difficult. I'm interested that your your co-director was a teacher in her previous life. Do you think without that insider knowledge, as it were, you would have been able to make the documentary you did? Or do you really think you needed someone on the inside, as it were, to mitigate what I would imagine would be resistance from a lot of people who wouldn't really understand why you wanted to come in and expose quite a lot of failures in the education system? The school were very brave, I think, in in letting us even begin the conversation with them but it's important to them for this conversation to be had that's the whole reason they set up their school in terms of Jamie's background helping I mean we both worked a lot in schools and actually we teach together quite a lot as well but um, clearly she's got a bit more um, experience than me Um, I think it, it helped in kind of a filmmaking way in that we knew how to sort of move around observationally within the classroom and to operate in a in a way that wouldn't disturb what was going on in the classroom. Um, so I think that was really beneficial, our, our background in sort of spending a lot of time in classrooms, whether as a teacher or running workshops. And you mentioned that you had quite a special relationship with one teacher in particular. Could you tell us a bit about them and maybe why you think or what you saw it was that helps them work so well together? A lot of what we see in the school is, is centred around Harry's relationship with Sophie. Sophie is an incredibly patient, dedicated woman. Um, the amount of time and energy she was prepared to put into Harry outside of all of our other commitments, supported by the school, was was kind of extraordinary. And she actually she she actually did the same with all of her all of her class. She you know she would try and make time for one on one discussions at least once or twice a week with each of them, which. Might not sound like a lot, but um, for anyone who works in education, to find 15 minutes with 30 children every week, plus all your teaching burden and marking, is is a, a feat. And you need to think, am I setting a good example? Because I know you can. There seems to be lots of practical action coming out of this documentary. Is that what you aimed for at the start or were you really just looking to tell a story and all of this is all a happy byproduct of the power of that story that you ended up with? I mean we were interested in the themes and we thought that make, making a character-led film we would you know we believe in the power of empathy to sort of influence debate not to change things but to, to open up a space for people to think differently about things and in any case I think it's healthy for for viewers to see people who they might not m- normally meet talking about their lives and, and how how it works and what challenges they face and what makes them happy and that sort of thing. As a director, I was probably more leaning towards just making the, 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 the film as good a story as we could. But um, the production team have sort of surprised Jamie and I with the level of energy they've been able to build up around the film. And it's, it's been great to see so far to, to you know, to reach everywhere from community screening, which ends up raising lots of money for a local literacy organisation, right up to, to having it raised in the House of Commons. It's clearly something that a lot of people care about. When I'm older, I don't want to be like the person who's left out living on the streets. I don't know what's going to happen next year. Life is just life.
and H's for Harry is showing at the Arts Picture House on Tuesday the 30th of April at 6.15. It's a certificate 12A and both of the film's directors should be there for a Q&A screening after the film. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, we're almost uh, running to the end of today's show. We just have time for one more film, and it is Greta. I guess she's been planning bags around the city. I was hoping someone brings them back to her. And you did. Oh my God, it's her. Just let it ring. I saw the bags, Greta. And I never want to see you again. She's really freaking me out. This is not a problem. Public area, her rights are protected. Why are you doing this? How exciting. Hi, I'm Frances, and I'll be your waitress for the evening. No, I can't do this. Are you a child? No, you're the child. You need a mother to hold it. Don't you dare talk to me about my mother. She had to die for us to meet. Are you out of your mind? Look at her. She's full of greeting. She's gone, Frances! Just try to get rid of Greta. So, Greta. Uh, now, now, normally at this point we would talk about the film uh, in, in great length. We have, of course, been chatting off-air just to prepare ourselves for the conversation. And the instant vibe I'm getting from both Vicky and Bridget is that we are not fans of this film. So what we might do over the next eight minutes or so is, is talk briefly about Greta and then uh, dig into some of the much better films that the people in, in this film have been involved with. So let's try and get Greta out of the way first up. Uh, I have to say, this I found deeply disappointing. Uh, Neil Jordan, normally a very reliable director, uh, and I just don't know what he was quite trying to say with this, uh, with uh, with Isabel Aupair about the only redeeming feature of the film uh, just being out to be a little bit crazy. But what what's the point, Bridget? What is the point of Greta? Is there a point? It's this amazing thriller about a, a woman and a younger woman who make friends in New York, uh, which is quite difficult. But then one of them's evil, and it's it's very thrilling, and there's lots of stalking and danger. That's yeah. the point, is, allegedly. Is there, is there danger, though? Is, does does it at any point actually feel threatening? Yeah, I was, I was trying to go along with what the what the, what the director, what the journey the director's going. Um, I've not seen as much horror as you, so some of the things that you thought were telegraphed um, came as surprises to me. Um, there, there were there were a few moments that that were actually quite gripping to me, but here comes the but. All, the, all these holes and why why do people behave the way they do why do they leave their phone on in the middle of the night why does no one notice when the person who's been stalked has suddenly disappeared for a few weeks um yeah, it, it, it does feel like it's a film, uh, and I can't believe we're still having this discussion 20 years after Scream, where, where characters have a complete lack of self-awareness and always make the stupidest decision possible at any given point. Um, you know, it's the almost don't go into the, the dark room or the cellar. Oh, look, she's going down to the cellar. Uh, what, a, what a terrible surprise. Um, did this have any redeeming features for you, Vicky? Um, Isabel Hubert's done scene was a, a great, great part of the film. Um, I feel like um, I was waiting um, for so- something more throughout the whole thing, um, waiting for something to justify its uh, cringiness. Uh, maybe could have like been replaced with some gore or anything, um, but it didn't. It didn't go anywhere really, like that I didn't predict anyway. And uh, there was a point where it could have turned around. It could have. Uh, uh, that sort of dreamlike sequence in the middle of it, where uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, uh, it could have turned around then. It could have like uh, salvaged it to, to make uh, 
something less predictable, but it didn't quite happen. And I came away just melancholy about it all, to be honest. <laughs> Well, it feels like a missed opportunity to me because we, we, we rarely see a, a female character like uh, Isabel Lopez Greta being the antagonist in this kind of film and, and being the menacing one. And, and Isabel does do a, a, a pretty reasonable job, but there's, there's just one odd moment of, of gore, which if you'll pardon the slightly spoilery pun, sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, and it, it, I just don't know that, that anyone involved ever got a true grip on what they were trying to do with this. Um, I, I, I'm struggling to try and find nice things to say about it. I really am. Can anyone chip in with any other nice things so that we don't we don't completely do this a disservice? Hey, come on, bro. Uh, I think uh, her best friend character. I loved her. I think uh, her sentences, her like whole way she holds herself throughout the film is just very New York, I guess. <laughs> and she she's the one person who does seem to actually have a clue of what she's doing in the course of the film mm. as well. People will probably know her from uh, from It Follows, which is a fantastic uh, horror film uh, which which does very different things. Uh, shot so much in daylight, uh, unlike a lot of other horror films. I mean, it does feel like Neil Jordan has probably never watched a horror film. Uh, it it just doesn't to me feel like he, he's any real idea of where he's trying to go, or indeed a thriller, because it doesn't it doesn't to me seem to to thrill. Um, he's trying to get across the horror vibe quite early with the um, sound effects. Often uh, there's some scenes in a church and as well as the sort of church atmos there's some eerie wind whistling so you get this sense of unease but if we're talking about um, films that play with horror trope sounds uh, Get Out is so much better and does it so much more interestingly. And the soundtrack is is just a succession of Bernard Herrmann-esque jaunty strings of... And uh, it just doesn't feel original at all. So rather than than distract myself with any talk of this, let's just, uh, for the last couple of minutes, um, any other films... uh, We've mentioned Michael Monroe being in in It Follows. Uh, So Isabel Appert, she's recently been in Elle, which I don't think either of you have seen, and so I'm going to recommend to you strongly uh, Paul Verhoeven's uh, thriller, which is a much better showcase for Isabel Appert. And Chloe Grace Moretz to me deserves better than this because her character is is not even one note she's no note she's she's almost as blank faced as the kids in dumbo they just stand (laughs) there and stares she's from massachusetts she's nice she rides a bicycle this performance didn't quite give her the career justice that she deserves especially like on the heels of miseducation at cameron post which i just i thought was like one of the stars of last year um completely in love with desiree akhavan um I, I generally thought that this her role in Cameron Post like belonged to her one hundred percent, and then um, this one sort of lost her. Uh, and we we were also mentioning off air uh, Clouds of Sils Maria with uh, with Juliet Binoche and uh, Kristen Stewart as well as being a, a great Chloe Moretz film. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I go back as far as things like Five Hundred Days of Summer, which which had a very long, uh, a very long, very young Chloe Moretz, uh, and uh, and was a, was a fantastic piece of work as well. Um, any any other uh, films that that I, I would also recommend Byzantium, which is an earlier Neil Jordan film, which had Gemma Arterton and was was vampire based as well, uh, which is a much better Neil Jordan film if people are looking something genre from from Neil Jordan. Any other quick recommendations before we wrap this one up from from the people involved here? Not a recommendation, but I was disappointed because Jordan normally brings a lot more depth to his characters. Yeah, they, they, they just felt like everyone was a little bit surface here, or, or not even that, if we're, if we're lucky. Uh, I mean, I would ultimately recommend people not to watch the film, to stay at home and do what Isabelle Appert did and, and stick some Chopin on and do a bit of dancing. Uh, so if you can find a clip of that in the trailer just to inspire you, maybe that's the way to go. Uh, Greta is uh, still showing at the 
Uh, some of the Cambridge cinemas, I've actually forgotten the script to write down which ones, but uh, it, it'll be at the light, definitely. Uh, and uh, it is... Uh, is it the Picture uh, House? Picture House. It's got, it must be a stick at 15, I would have thought, uh, based on the on the, um, the the gore that we uh, we see in the film. Uh, and I'm not even on the right page on the internet anymore. So, uh, yes, it is a 15. Anyway, all that rambling means that I, what I'm going to do is play you out uh, in tribute to Avengers Endgame coming next week with a bit of the mighty Avengers and Lost Without You. And I just have time to tell you uh, that uh, we have uh, probably Avengers Endgame, 8th grade and talking amongst other things coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, my music seems to have disappeared completely, so I'm giving up on that. Uh, I'm just going to talk between now and the end of the show. Uh, if you want to find us and continue the conversation, you can do so on Facebook and Twitter, just by searching for Bums on Seats. Uh, and uh, it'll be uh, the regular team back in a couple of weeks' time with those films. Uh, the show is not repeated tomorrow, as usual, uh, because uh, we didn't get a chance to hear stage and screen on its usual Thursday slot, so that's being aired tomorrow at 2. But the show will be available as a podcast, as usual, from the Cambridge 105 website, iTunes and other podcasting services. Uh, Stay tuned for the brilliant Women Making Waves with Susie and Linda. Uh, but for now, for all of us here on Bums on Seats, goodbye and we'll see you in two weeks' time.